0: This is Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollock. Hope you had a great weekend and happy Easter. Uh, Today, we'll talk about a French film festival coming to St. Louis. People have been making maple syrup in Missouri for generations, going back to when St. Genevieve was first settled, but it's getting more difficult. Military history writer Jeremy Amick will be along to talk about his new book, A Global Warrior. And in 1973, hundreds of UFO sightings were reported in Piedmont and Wayne County a Missouri legislative bill sponsored by state representative Chris Dinkins aims to bring attention to what people reported seeing 50 years ago. Elisa Nelson talks to Dennis Hovis of Piedmont about the sightings that put the southeast Missouri area on the UFO
1: map. First of all, I want to tell you that Piedmont, Wayne County, is, uh, is where the UFOs really began in 1983. The publicity throughout the United States, and in fact, we even had newspaper articles as far away as China talking about Piedmont and Wayne County being the UFO capital headquarters at that time they didn't call it the capital they called it the headquarters and so with that thought in mind uh, I what Chris is uh, offering to do for the county and for Piedmont is to make it known because people still come there looking to see if they can see a UFO uh, Local residents don't talk to them much about it because people that even see them today are a little hesitant to say anything about it because they don't want to be ridiculed or talked about in a strange way. But Piedmont, Wayne County, is certainly UFO headquarters because uh, William Shatner of uh, uh, the old Star Trek program and uh, his program that has aired on the Travel Channel, which is called The Unexplained, has indicated Piedmont, highlighted Piedmont on their program. Also, uh, the Missouri Mayhem on the History Channel has publicized Piedmont and Wayne County on that channel. So with those significant sources indicating that Piedmont, Wayne County, is uh, the location of a lot of ufo activity from 1973 up to probably the present time would be a reason for that being designated the uh, capital
2: Dennis have you seen any ufos in Piedmont
1: I have witnessed ufos because we call them unidentified flying objects so if you go out tonight well it's a cloudy day today but if you go out on a clear night and you sit down and you look into the heavens you're going to witness some strange activity, and that's what we saw a lot of. We saw a lot of lights moving in directions up, down, uh, going sideways real quickly. Now, people that saw the real UFOs, those were their close encounters. We should call those. Was Reggie Bone, Mr. Miss or Mrs. Coleman, um, and Joe King and. Ron Miller uh, were teachers in town. They witnessed an object that looked like a saucer. So those were the real close encounters. But the ones I saw were, I just, I was just reporting what I got to see to other people. So I didn't get to really see that type of object.
2: So were there like, uh, Were there any, like, major investigations done back in the day about these uh, unidentified flying objects?
1: Yes. Uh, In fact, uh, the first one was uh, a gentleman by the name of, and he's deceased now, J. Allen Hynek, who was a renowned UFO investigator for the United States government, and he was a consultant to the U.S. Air Force Project Blue Book, and he came to Piedmont, And he determined that about 20% of the sightings were unexplainable. And then later, uh, uh, Dr. Harley Rutledge, who was head of the, uh, chair of the department at Southeast Missouri State University, uh, he was very knowledgeable about astronomy and electronics and optics and these types of things. Uh, For about a seven-year period, he conducted uh, from 1973 to 1980, he did what they call project identification, and he even wrote a book about that. And uh, its I don't think it's in publication any longer, but you could probably find a copy of it on the Internet someplace. He did uh, many, many hours. Uh, in fact, he uh, did over 700 still photos. He had 157 sightings that were unidentified, and uh, he set up like 620 observers worked with him students other people from the college so it was very very well noted that he was very good at what he was doing and um, along with Dr. Hynek and and Dr. Rutledge yes there was some pretty uh, close encounters and and investigations
2: I was going to ask you if there were plenty debunked it sounds like J. Allen Hynek he debunked about 80 percent then yes he did so, have you looked into it based upon uh, newly released information to see if see what's up there in Piedmont?
1: No, I have not. I would love to see that information. <laughs> well, it could, you know, it's it's out there. It's just that uh, uh, it's time consuming, and mm-hmm. I like to play golf and fish.
2: <laughs> All right, we've got Dennis Hovis of Piedmont joining. Show me today. To talk about a bill that State Representative Chris Dinkins of Lesterville is sponsoring, it would make Piedmont the UFO capital of Missouri. You said even today, up to even today as far as UFO sightings. Do you have, it sounds like just based upon some articles that I read um, back during that era, the 1970s, um, there were a lot of people that went to the Piedmont area to check things out. I'm curious what it's like even today as far as people coming into Piedmont, to UFO hunters, uh, UFO enthusiasts. Is that still uh, I can, happening I can, much?
1: I can only tell you as a resident of Piedmont that I, I think, and I'm sure that there's still people come through, I don't talk to them, see them, but with me, being on these TV programs and me traveling around uh, playing golf at different places uh, people ask me all the time about the UFOs of Piedmont it's a big thing for them they get excited you've been excited wanting to know more about it and that does happen and it's still happening I was explaining or indicating to Chris a moment ago that only uh, maybe a, three or four years ago, a gentleman was fishing in Clearwater Lake, and uh, it was a nighttime fisherman, and they witnessed a, a light overhead, very very bright, shining down on them. When the light went off, they could see nothing. It was gone, no sound. So those are the kinds of things, but they never told anybody. They didn't call the news media, and they just happened to tell me. And. I'm not in the news media anymore, so I don't tell what's, anybody.
2: What's the freakiest story that has gone around in Piedmont about
1: UFOs? <laughs> well, one of the funniest ones was some fellas played a joke on someone. It was a joke. <laughs> and uh, they uh, were fishing in the lake, and they had hooked a uh, a monster-looking looking thing on the other fella's line, and he didn't know it and he reeled this thing in and pulled it up over the side and it was a it was an awfully looking monkey type looking object and it was pretty frightening for them but still yet uh, there were a lot of other things that were probably true we had people that reported hearing mining operations going on high-pitched sounds uh in the elsinore missouri area they had a um investigation of a tornado appearance but it was only in one spot where it just set down something appeared to have sat down in a in a, in a in a in a in an area of trees and they laid them all out in a circle so they never could figure out exactly what that was so those were some strange unusual sightings one other sighting and I, I don't have the I have the names but I would I can't tell you the names of the folks but they were very reputable citizens of the community Prior to the UFO sighting in 1973 February, sometime in January, these folks were traveling in the same area that the UFO was sighted. It's called Brushy Creek, and nearby Brushy Creek is Black River, which runs out of Clearwater Lake. They were traveling through there about 11 o'clock of the night, and there were three couples. They saw a frogman on the side of the road walking. It was cold winter time. The river was not nearby and uh, had flippers on, mask. They didn't say anything to each other until they got down the road a little ways. And one of them said, Did anybody see what I just saw? Very strange. Because if you look at any UFO information, they always describe the aliens in frogman looking outfits. Now, please, I'm not telling you there was an alien out there because I don't know that. But they saw something strange. And so these are the kinds of things that, uh, and, and these are folks that, in fact, this group of people were all teachers at our school. So I, I would think that they were reputable enough not to just, and they didn't tell that story for me to put it on the news when I never did until today.
2: Until today. All right. Uh, so Dennis Hofus of Piedmont on Show Me Today talking about State Representative Chris Dinkins' bill uh, that would make Piedmont the UFO capital of missouri this is show me today the voice of missouri
3: i've been driving trucks for a long time safety is my number one priority i know that my truck has huge blind spots that's why i remember to check my mirrors often for smaller vehicles everyone can help keep our roads safe next time you're behind the wheel try to avoid lingering in those blind spots it can be dangerous let's all plan to share the road safely Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. The first three years of every child's life are critical. Learn more about early intervention.
0: How your baby or toddler plays, learns, talks, acts, and moves give important clues as to how they are developing. If you have any questions or concerns about whether your baby or toddler's development is on track, please call 1-800-515-BABY. That's 1-800-515-2229. Call 1-800-515-BABY. That's 1-800-515-2229.
4: Mom and Dad used to argue about everything, especially about Dad's drinking. My family went from totally crazy to quiet, calm, and even peaceful when Mom started going to Al-Anon family groups. I wanted a better relationship with Dad, so I asked Mom if she would take me to her Al-Anon meetings or to Alateen. I'm sure glad I did. If someone's drinking troubling you, You might be surprised at what you can learn in an Al-Anon or Alateen family group from people just like you. Call 1-888-4ALANON or go to alanon.org.
5: Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved?
3: Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking?
5: If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon, Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call
6: 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org/help.
5: Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved?
4: Do you
3: feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking?
5: If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Alanon, Al-Anon and Alatine can, can
6: help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. This is Shelby Today, the voice of
0: Missouri. Maple syrup production in Missouri isn't a huge industry, but there are some small-scale producers and people who like to do it for a hobby. But there are some obstacles when it comes to syrup production in Missouri. Joining us is Hannah Hemmelgarn with the University of Missouri Center for Agroforestry. She joins us. Uh, Hannah, nice to have you. Thank you.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
0: You know, I didn't realize maple syrup production has been going on a long time, generations here in Missouri.
4: Oh, yeah, thousands of years, really before colonization, too. This is a long tradition.
0: You know, I thought uh, if you wanted to make your own maple syrup, you'd have to leave Missouri and go to Vermont, go to New England. I didn't realize that um, that you could do it here uh, in, in the middle part of the country.
4: Yeah, we're, we're sort of on the western edge of, uh, Maple Sugar's range, southwestern edge of Maple Sugar's native range. Um, but you know, there are other maples that are also here in Missouri. Silver maples are a little bit more dominant and there are plenty of them. Um, it doesn't take a very large tree to be able to tap and collect sap. Um, the, the process of boiling that sap into syrup or sugar is pretty energy intensive so that that can also be a barrier for people who are wanting to do this or scale up um to any degree but yeah we we definitely have the capacity to make tree saps and well the trees are making the sap and we're making the syrup and sugar and it's not just maples that can do this this amazing uh, offer their sap Um, black walnuts also are a sap producing tree and um Missouri has more black walnuts than uh, than any other state in the U.S.
0: Wow. Uh, now, I have this picture of uh, when it comes to, you know, getting the sap of of people. And again, I'm going back to this image of uh, Vermont, people walking through the snow, and they, you know, tap the tree, and out comes the snap. Is there a particular time of year that you draw the sap from a tree? Is it wintertime? Does it have to be cold?
4: Well, so this is a really important piece, and, and it's one of the things that – is making syrup-making in Missouri a little bit more challenging. So there's kind of a narrow window between winter and spring when the temperatures are fluctuating between freezing or below at night and then above freezing during the daytime. And in Missouri, that often happens around mid-January, February into March – but the season is getting shorter and less predictable um, as as the, as the climate is changing.
0: And so how does that affect um, how much sap comes out of a tree?
4: Yeah, so um, that, that temperature fluctuation essentially creates a pressure dynamic so that the sap can flow out of the tree. So there's always water moving in a tree. Well, in the winter, it's frozen, frozen. Um, Well, so, okay, there's more to it. There's a lot of anatomy (laughs) and physiology. I'll try to keep this basic, but, um, maple trees, the reason their sap is a little bit sweet is because those sugars are keeping the, the tree cells from bursting when they freeze. So that's one of their survival adaptation mechanisms. Um, and that's also why some other saps also are sweet, but maple sap is particularly sweet. Um, and when I say sweet, we're talking about, you know, two percent sugar uh, or three percent sugar in the sap. So that's why we have to boil it down. So the the boiled down ratio, ratio typically is about forty gallons of sap to one gallon of syrup. Um, so it, that, that's that's when coming back to this energy intensive process of making syrup, you can also drink the sap you can um, let some of that sap water freeze and pour off the water that isn't frozen as a higher sugar content of sap Um, and then use that to i like making coffee with sap or just drinking it people make carbonated sap beverages there are lots of ways to use tree sap other than making syrup Um, but yeah so this seasonal variation When we don't have those fluctuations between below-freezing and above-freezing, then we're not going to get that pressure gradient, and the sap flow starts to drop off. As it gets warmer, the trees are also going to start budding out. So, um, And once the maple trees are flowering, it's really not um, a good time to be collecting their sap anymore. The sugar content changes, the amount of sap sap changes, and they really need that sap then to, to be supporting their growth.
0: Hannah Hemelgarn with the University of Missouri Center for Agroforestry doing a great job of explaining how to get the sap out of a maple tree. I mean, that's it's complex, but you really did lay it out perfectly for us. So I, oh, thanks. a lot of people do this for a hobby, but there are some, um, some farms, some farmers that will do this uh, kind of a, a down part of the season. Um, does it affect their business? Has the weather affected their business at all? And how much of a concern has that been?
4: Yeah, well, I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why we see a lot more smaller scale sugar producer producers in Missouri and people who are thinking of this as one component of a diversified farm system or forest system. So we're not going to see people like in Vermont, someone might have... A, a farm that's really, or a forest that's really dedicated to syrup production, and that's their main industry. That's not something we're likely to see in Missouri because, in part, because of those fluctuations, because we don't have quite as many maples in, in the same abundance. Maple trees are not, um, also not a preferred tree um, for some of the ecological benefits that, that folks are often looking for in forest systems in Missouri. So, white oaks are often preferred. Um, and maples also have have habitat benefits, um, but because they are so successful at regenerating in shade in the shaded conditions of other trees, they often will outcompete some of these other trees who need help creating that space. I don't know that I did a great job explaining that, but but oak trees are um, are not as likely to regenerate, so we need to support them in order to um, sustain the, those oak populations in the state too. Uh, Okay. So that's sort of an aside. (laughs) Um, But, but yeah, so what I think is valuable for producers in Missouri, um, one of the reasons that I think it's, it's valuable for producers in Missouri to be thinking about potentially tapping trees for sap and syrup production um, is to start thinking about their forest. Um, And, you know, for people who maybe haven't, uh, put together a forest management plan, it's a good opportunity to say, okay, I've got an existing stand of maple trees. We're not going to encourage people to plant more maples because of those ecological reasons I, I explained, but um but we do want them to start thinking about the health of the forest and the potential for other harvestable products in that space so maple sugaring is one um what we call a non timber forest product or beyond timber forest product there are many other uh, non timber forest products that grow here in Missouri we think about ginseng medicinal forest botanicals golden seal cohosh Um, There are floral and botanical products that can be harvested from the forest. So um, the the goal with what we're doing with the Center for Agroforestry, with forest farming, is to get people out into the woods to become familiar, to be paying attention to these important forested spaces.
0: Hannah Hemmelgarn with the University of Missouri Center for Agroforestry. So are you discouraging people from uh, drawing maple syrup?
4: No, not at all. Um, I think this is not only a beautiful family tradition that can be passed down, like we talked about generation to generation. It's a very old tradition. Um, it's also a source of sustainable sugar um, and really delicious, nutritious. You know, these the sap products from the, the forest are really a treat. So this is a great way to uh, become familiar with, with the trees in your backyard or in your neighborhood, your community, and um, and have some fun with it.
0: Is there a place where people can go if they're interested in learning more about this as a hobby uh, where they could?
4: Yeah. 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 So the Center for Agroforestry, um, we've been working with partners in Illinois and producers across the state and in Illinois um, to put together essentially a resource hub for people who are already doing tree sugaring or who are interested in either scaling up or getting into it, um, and the website is centerforagroforestry.org/tree sugaring, and um, there you can actually find resources on um, on this topic from other regions too. But we are compiling information that we are learning from producers here in Missouri. Um, And that's really valuable, not only for financial planning, if you are wanting to scale up, but for people to also be thinking about that shortening or less predictable season, to think about what what scale is going to be right for them. You know, because this requires attention to those seasonal changes, if you are someone who has the flexibility to be watching those those taps and see how much sap is flowing and paying attention to the trees, then doing this at a small scale might be just right for you.
0: Maple syrup in Missouri. And then you also mentioned black walnuts. Um, is, is that sweet mm-hmm. too? Or what, what's that sap
4: like? What, yeah, it's a little bit sweet? lower sugar content, um, but it can definitely be made into syrup and it's a very specialty sort of niche product. Um, I, I should say, as a caveat, you know, black walnut trees are typically thought of for their timber value. And we would not encourage anyone to tap a tree that is being grown for timber or managed for timber. But there are plenty of black walnut trees that are not being managed for timber. Um, and this is an opportunity to, yet again, harvest another forest product.
0: Hannah Hemmelgarn with the University of Missouri Center for Agroforestry. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so
4: much for having me.
0: This is Show Me Today,
6: the Voice of Missouri.
3: Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-twenties.
2: Affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control. And priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth.
3: And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices.
2: With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media.
3: Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not.
2: So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping, because when you talk,
9: they hear you.
3: For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov.
7: Email from school. about the incident today? Scary. Tell me about it. Did you have any idea that was going on?
2: None. I mean, you saw Derek at the game last night, too. Did you have a clue?
7: No, but you know, teachers like me, parents, we don't always know as much as you guys do. Kids hear first about what's going on with other kids.
2: Half the time, it's rumors.
7: It can be hard to tell sometimes, but if you have a concern about a friend who's having trouble with alcohol, prescription drugs, bullying, violence, anything, you need to tell an adult.
0: Welcome back to Show Me Today. Military history writer Jeremy Amick is with Ashley Byrd. He'll be signing one of his recent books soon in St. Louis. Ashley asked him to join us and tell us more about the event and the subject of his book that's titled A Global
9: Warrior. We're talking to Jeremy Amick here, who is a prolific Missouri history writer, usually military history, a lot of stuff that goes way back in military history, but a more recent book, A Global Warrior deals with a more recent um personality tell us more about that jeremy
10: yeah for a few years ago i had a, the pleasure of being uh, introduced to a gentleman somebody they knew i was writing articles about local veterans i said hey there's this retired two-star two-star u.s army general living here in jefferson city and he's rebuilding the old uh, warwick village you ought to go meet him and do an article on him and uh, so i managed to get a hold of him it was his name was hank stratman and, uh, I did a story about Major General Hank Stratman for the, for the newspaper. And that ran several years ago. Very fascinating man. And then that ended up, uh, uh, a couple years ago, while I was finishing up another book, he approached me at an event and said, Hey, would you be interested in possibly telling my story, uh, helping me, you know, share my, uh, my experiences in a biography? And that he didn't want to to come across in a sense as a a braggart, but he wanted his story to be more focused on educating and inspiring the youth. So I ended up uh, meeting with him uh, almost weekly for about a year and penned his biography titled A Global Warrior. And General Stratman's very interesting. He's uh, one of those guys you always hear about pulling themselves up from the bootstrap. He was raised in a German Catholic family down in uh, Vienna, Missouri. Graduated high school down there, ended up marrying his high school sweetheart. He did pretty well academically and was kind of a standout athlete and got a, you know, partial scholarship to Lincoln University. And he went on to uh, graduate from Lincoln and uh, was commissioned through there as a second lieutenant through the ROTC program. And throughout his uh, career of more than 30 years, 30, yeah, 30 years, over 30 years, he had managed to climbed through the ranks and became a two-star general and is currently the highest ranking military officer to come out of lincoln university and i mean there's so much to his career and you know we don't want to obviously just bore the listeners we want them also to go look at his read his book hopefully but uh uh, some of the highlights were his service in desert storm where his uh, battalion helped lead the artillery invasion during the gulf war first one and then later he You know, served two tours in Bosnia during those humanitarian mission era and uh, later helped uh, set up the war theater in Iraq and Afghanistan as part of Operation Iraqi Freedom. So a lot of history, a lot of background, just a really neat guy to talk to. And he doesn't live too far from uh, Jefferson City now. He's up in Callaway County and Holt Summit.
9: You know, a lot of your history you have to dig through so much history, and and don't often have the pleasure of working with the person themselves. How how different is it to have someone who can tell you his whole story?
10: Yeah, it, it was a lot different because I've uh, I've written several biographies. I believe, I'm trying to think, uh, six biographies. I believe, and three of them have been. Uh, uh posthumous so uh, yeah it's it is entirely different writing a, a story about someone who is still among us uh it's i don't know if it's really easier or not because it's like there's so much more you have to to sift through but you you still have to find a way to cut it off the <laughs> so you don't i mean it's as i told hank when we were writing this book i said my goal is to keep it around 300 pages you to tell the story you know uh in a very detailed fashion, but hopefully not get too much detail because if you look at some of these military generals that write their books, and he even will tell you, admit this is they've got 600, 700 page books and you just, I mean, you go to sleep trying to read them. So, uh, you know, we didn't want to put anybody to sleep. We wanted to hit all the highlights and the important points and tell the story. And again, to be able to inspire the youth. And I think that, uh, hopefully we have, we have done that.
9: Since he did ROTC at Lincoln and that's still a great opportunity. Uh, what are some of the, points what are some of the the things he's trying to get across to you through this book
10: that our democracy and our freedoms are 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 worth defending and preserving and that we all have a responsibility to serve our country in some respect not necessarily everybody needs to don a military uniform i mean some aren't mentally capable of doing some some aren't physically capable of doing some some just aren't don't have the inclination for that but to serve their nation to serve their communities uh, and, you know, to be a good citizen. And he is a gentleman, like I said, who never had anything handed to him. Uh, like many of us, he's he's worked for everything he has. And he he loves this country. He loves this nation. He knows that it's the best nation on Earth, despite all its warts and that we for it to be better. We all have a responsibility in making that. So
9: you mentioned that he his coming of age story during the Vietnam War. And that was a coming-of-age story for a lot of folks. Um, what were his reflections on that, and 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 how we have grown in our our treatment of veterans and things like that? Did he give you any wisdom, having been through all of that, and still being a leader in the military?
10: Uh, definitely, you know, one of the things that he keeps beating the drum of on, and, and I'm glad that we hear that is just, you know, as a military leader, you 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 treat everybody the same. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, can't have favoritism. Everybody, if you're in a military uniform, you're a soldier, and that's it. And I think that really came into play a lot during post-Vietnam because he talked about a lot of the pains that they experienced in the uh, 1980s, late 1970s, early 1980s. You know, when all the they were ramping down, scaling back the military um, during the uh, following Vietnam and in the early 80s when they were really pushing to have more women in the in the in the service and that was you know something different than what a lot of people were accustomed to especially in the u.s army so there were a lot of growing pains and um and i think a lot what he kind of explained is the lesson i took is certainly flexibility i mean that's the one constant we all know is change and there were a lot of changes during that period and then again during the uh 2001, post 2001, there were a lot of changes too, as far as the op Temple of deployments and the type of deployments, and there were a lot of changes, and uh, you had to be flexible and innovative to be able to respond to those changes.
9: Yes, I don't want to give away everything that's in the book, but you know, he you wrote that he his final tour of duty was in Baghdad um, in 2006. With three decades of military service, he retired as a major general. A farm boy from rural vienna missouri um mm-hmm. he wanted to give everything away but i'm interested to to read because i haven't read this yet but i'm interested to read all of the observations through all the different phases of military service that that time incorporates as much as probably any other period in military history would you agree
10: well absolutely yeah and especially for somebody just well he coming out of the rotc program at the end of the vietnam war uh, being introduced right into the Cold War in Europe, and, and then again through the, uh, the, the the horrible period of the early '80s for the military and the scale backs and then Desert Storm comes along, and then Bosnia peacekeeping missions. And then we transition to post 9/11. So yeah, there were. <laughs> I don't know if there was a more transformative period. That I mean, unless you had a World War One vet that stayed in through World War Two and Korea, that might beat it. But You
9: have a book signing coming up in St. Louis.
10: Yeah, that is uh, from 2 to 4 p.m. on April 15th, uh, tax day, uh, at the St. Louis Public Library, Carondelet location.
9: And uh, you'll be signing A Global Warrior, and I'm sure there are other books there that you'll be glad to sign as
10: well. So we'll sign away. (laughs)
9: <laughs> Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, thanks for joining us on Show Me Today. We'll talk to you again soon. We're on Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri.
0: Why
7: are we getting killed like this? Kyle's not here. Got caught drinking beer in the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Harsh. Hey, he knew not to drink. We've made that clear to all of our kids, right? Uh... No, not really. Bill, if we don't tell them what we expect and why they shouldn't drink, how are they going to know?
6: Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov.
2: Matthew. Uh, oh, sorry. It's okay.
5: I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you, and what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care.
3: For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov.
0: Welcome back to Show Me Today. The 15th Robert Classic French Film Festival allows Missourians to indulge in an educational session for French popular culture. The festival celebrates France's cinematic legacy and St. Louis's Gaelic heritage. Cameron Connor is with Brian Spath.
8: The 15th iteration or edition of the Classic French Film Festival. Um, and in its first couple of years of existence, it wasn't really wholly defined as, as a classic um Film fest, a classic in the sense of presenting films that are 20 years or older. Um, the first couple of years that we staged this, we presented um, a couple of classic films, you know, a couple of older films, and then a couple of newer films. And we found that attendance for the newer films was was less than desired, but the the older films, uh, you know, really helped to turn people out and uh, and you know build strong audiences. We turned our focus to um, strictly older films and defined it sort of nebulously as, as 20 years, 20 to 25 years or older. Um, and, a, and a large portion of our focus has been on films from 40s, 50s, 60s, and into the 70s. Um, we're kind of playing more with the last couple of years with films that are from the turn of the century, in, you know, 98 to 2002. Um, and this year alone, I think we have at minimum two films that are that old, but always kind of just looking at, you know, what's available and, and what's of interest and, and what we hope might pull out folks and, and, you know, put them in the seats.
11: Wow. And then the 15th annual. So congratulations to all of you. That's fantastic. that This is 15 years running now. And I think it's very, very interesting. And I'd love for you to expand on it a little bit that you all found that there was a little bit more success in offering some of the classical more French films throughout these past years. What are some of the examples of films that you're running this year, and are there any returning ones that you've aired before in the past, or are they all brand new for this festival to debut?
8: No, so this will, everything will be brand new um, in terms of, you know, what we're, what we're presenting in the fest. We try not to repeat things, if only because, you know, in, in any aspect or genre or, or, you know, country of origin of film, there's going to be so many options um, to screen that, um, you know, it's almost... Uh, Almost a detriment to repeat something. Um, so yeah, we we definitely taken the approach that every every year is going to be a, a clean slate, a fresh slate. Um, you know, particularly when you're dealing with you know nearly a hundred years of cinema, every wave or every decade is going to have something to offer um, that we you know we we definitely don't need to rely on on repeating things. With that said, it, it also you know we have to do. Um, our homework and, and making sure that we're going back and double checking, you know, previous iterations and making sure that we aren't repeating something. Because, like you said, with 15 years, there's there's a lot of a lot of films that we could easily, uh, you know, double back and if, if we're not paying attention.
11: Absolutely, a large selection of films to select from. That that's for sure. And for those of you just now tuning in, this is Show Me Today, the Voice of Missouri. I'm Cameron Connor. We're here talking about the 15th annual Robert Classic French Film Festival that's going to be taking place. At Webster University. And for anyone listening, we're also talking here with Brian Spath. He's the operations supervisor for Cinema St. Louis, who is helping bring this festival to us. Brian, can you can you take me through kind of the operations or just kind of the the process that anyone absorbing these films is going to experience when they sit down in their seat? Is there any sort of informational sessions or history sessions they give about the film beforehand? How does that process work?
4: Yeah, that's,
8: that's one of the, the special aspects that we offer with this particular festival. You know, we try to, we try to create a unique screening experience for all the events that we put on, but particularly with the classic French film festival, we, we offer sort of an educational aspect with it too. We invite, um, film scholars, French scholars, um, cinephiles uh, with uh, with a decent reputation to to come out um, and you know look at the slate of films that we're offering and then they select a film that they you know have an affinity for or um, are are you know at least willing to to build um, their own education prior to the screening and then they come out they introduce the film they can give you know, a brief summation, um, of the film and its background. Uh, and then, you know, we go into the film itself and then afterward that same person comes back up to the podium and, and gives, um, you know, a lengthy discussion, um, on the genesis of the film, you know, interesting trivia hardships, um, that the filmmakers encountered any number of different things. And then we open it up to a, for a Q and a with the audience to see, uh, you know, just, you know, how far can we take the conversation?
11: Great. So not only just a cinema experience, it's very much an informational, educational experience that's very, very inclusive and very much an right. interac- Yeah, very much an interactive experience. What what a great way to go about it. How about maybe an example without, because that could be a whole interview in itself, <laughs> debuting all the films and going through all of it. Is there maybe one or two examples that you'd like to highlight to basically give give people some information? Maybe some films that they've heard before. Maybe some timeless classics. I- any sort of examples?
8: Yeah, so this year we we're going to be screening a, a new restoration of Shock a Lot um, from 1998 by Claire Denis, uh, and this is not to be confused with the, the Julia Binoche, uh, Johnny Depp film from 2001, I think. But this particular uh, this film, uh, Claire Denis's feature film debut, um, and if that name is not familiar, she is um, she's a prolific filmmaker, um, you know, of great renown. Uh, you know, she. For a lot of people, she would be in the, in the conversation of, of greatest living and working filmmakers. Um, she's done a number of different films. Uh, Beau Treve, which we screened last year. Uh, 35 Shots of Rum, which we screened at the St. Louis International Film Festival in 2008. High Life, which came out um, maybe four years ago, starring Robert Pattinson, um, sort of a, a space um, thriller um, that was that, that played you know pretty well to, to most audiences. Um, we're also screening Jean Bielman, um, which is a, a, a quite an investment for for most filmgoers. It's two hundred and two minutes long, um, directed by Chantal Ackerman. And it was recently named um, atop the list of BFI sight and sound greatest films of all time, um, which is quite a shock to a lot of people. But I think it also shows the reputation that this film has been g- garnering um, since its release in 1975. Eight Women, which is by Francois Ouzon. And it is um, a really fantastic sort of whodunit because it stars Catherine Deneuve, Isabelle Huppert, Emmanuel Baer, Ludivine Sanye. Uh, a lot of, if not recognizable names, but definitely recognizable faces in French cinema. Um, so that should be a lot of fun. That's from 2001. So one of those sort of the century classics in the making um, that we're happy to present this year.
11: How about for the wrap up question for you, Brian, can you tell me the when, the where, how to access tickets, all of that information so that anyone that's intrigued to go to this festival can head that way?
8: Sure. Yeah. Easiest thing is just to the, uh, the visit the Cinema St. Louis website. That's dot org. Cinema S T Louis dot o r g, And you can find all the film listings there. All films will screen at 7.30, uh, Friday through Sunday, um, one screening per film. And then with the exception of Gene Dielman, since it is a longer film, we're going to start that program at 630 um, everything takes place, as you said, on, on the campus of Webster University in Webster Hall, the Winifred Moore Auditorium, which hosts the Webster Film Series um, since 1979. Um, so we're very excited to be partnering with Webster uh, to present this program again. They've been a fabulous host and, and an exquisite partner, um, not only in facilitating the screenings of the films, but also um, Pete Timmerman. Uh, the director of the film series was instrumental in compiling this program and and seeing what's available and what might be of interest. And um, so we're we're kind of going outside of uh, the norm a little bit for what we've done in the past, um, but wanted to to take a few chances now that we are entering our 15th year and riding on the the support that people have have shown us and and hoping that they take a chance on, on what we're trying to do.
11: Once again, this has been Brian Spath. He is the operations supervisor for Cinema St. Louis, speaking about the 15th annual Robert Classic French Film Festival that will be starting and taking place April 14th and running through the next upcoming weekends all the way through the 28th and the 30th at Webster University. Brian, thank you so much for your time here on Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri.
8: Awesome. Thanks, Cameron. Really appreciate it. Show Me Today